Okay, we're, we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is kind of like a part two from my message last week, but we'll hit the ground running, and even if you missed it, you're going to be able to uh, gain a lot from this message. If you read carefully, one of the things that's sort of hidden plain sight through all of the, the New Testament letters, especially those inspired by God through Paul, is an emphasis on harmony and unity. That's a really big theme for Paul. And Paul is always writing to local churches and saying, I want you guys to fight for this. I want you to strive for this. And where you have harmony and unity together in a community, you have what the Bible calls peace. But not in the way that we often understand peace. We tend to define peace as the absence of conflict. Right? If there's no war, then we're at peace. But the biblical word for peace is shalom. And it actually has a much more positive um, element to it, meaning it's not just the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of safety, the presence of, uh, the presence of connection, that sense of being able to relax and feeling like, like this is the way it's supposed to be. So when you have shalom in your marriages, that's a safe place where you know your love um, we know you're loved and accepted. When our families are full of shalom, it's not just that we're not fighting, but we actually have the presence of active connection and joy, and there's laughter in our churches as well. And part of what Paul is really disturbed about as we move into the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians is the fact that there is not a lot of shalom in the church in Corinth. And not only is there not shalom, but they're making it worse by taking grievances that aren't insignificant, but they should be able to work them out. And they're jumping right to litigation, going to the public square and taking each other to court, publicly shaming each other, trying to win over and against each other. And so in that context, Paul writes these words, verses one to eight. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even people of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not just be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? But instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. So Paul is heartbroken, not only that they can't make peace, but they're making things worse. And we talked about that last week. It's one thing to be in tension with someone. It's quite another to bring it to the level of litigation. Once you go to that level, it's very difficult to scale things back down. Paul says, you are called to peace. Now, one of the themes that I talked about last week, again, it's the reason why so many New Testament letters are written is that conflict among believers is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. That shouldn't scare us. That shouldn't surprise us. 
We shouldn't be shocked when God calls a people together who maybe don't have a lot in common other than faith in Christ and a desire to learn what it means to be a Christian. And they have different tension points from meager to much. But just because conflict is inevitable, ongoing relational strife doesn't have to be. That's not inevitable. God actually provides a path and a way from being stuck in these places of tension, being stuck in these places of woundedness and hurt and bitterness and an arms race to try and win or get back or the stalemate. We need to understand as Christians that developing the skill of conflict resolution, what I'm going to call peacemaking, is one of the most critical skills you can have in your life. And it's important to recognize it as a skill because no one knows how to do it intuitively. Intuitively, what comes naturally to us is an adversarial posture against those who are against us. So we actually have to learn, and it takes a long time to learn, how to navigate conflict well, how to make peace. Most of us were exposed to a certain dynamic within our family of origin or core relationships growing up, and whether or not we were aware that we were studying it and taking it in and using that as the software and programming for how we deal with conflict, whether it's by avoiding it or moving into it in a very aggressive and domineering way, we were taught about the nature of conflict and how to deal with it or not deal with it from our family of origin. And what's important for us is to evaluate what we've been taught and then to say, does that actually line up with how God wants us to interact as it relates to conflict? Because just because something comes naturally to us does not mean that it's good or godly or constructive. There's many impulses that come naturally to us that will destroy us as a community if we don't pause and say, am I going about this God's way? Am I listening to God in this area? So this is a skill. It doesn't happen automatically. And if we don't develop that skill, we will get stuck in a stage of emotional immaturity, right? You'll be the 60-year-old Christian who is still an emotional adolescent or tween because how we address conflict in our lives is one of the major crucibles of God growing us up and maturing us. And so if we don't learn to do conflict well, we can stay stuck and almost everything in our life will be colored by that relational stuckness. So let's talk about, first of all, the opportunity that conflict gives us because there is an opportunity here. If you grew up like me with people around you saying, don't rock the boat, conflict is a bad thing, let's just keep the peace, then it might sound very strange to frame conflict as an opportunity. But as a Christian, we need to understand that's exactly what it is. It's an opportunity to do a few things. Number one, it's an opportunity to glorify God. Who has 1 Corinthians 10.31? Go ahead, Lynn. Whether you eat or drink, or address conflict when you're having tension or a fight with someone, 
do it to the glory of God. There's a way to do everything in life that pleases and honors God. So conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. It's also an opportunity to show honor to other people. Who has Romans 12.10? Just read it out if you have it. Honoring one another is a huge part of kingdom conflict. Conflict's an opportunity to fight for the relationship, to go the extra mile. Who has Ephesians 4.3? Make every effort to keep unity in the spirit through the bonds of peace. Every effort, not just like an effort, like, ah, eh, I tried, I sent the text, I didn't respond, whatever, I'm walking away. You fight for the relationship, right? This is a way to show the person that you actually care. It's also an opportunity to overcome evil, and not necessarily the evil in the other person, but what can become an evil, destructive situation, you can turn it for something good. Romans 12, 21. It's easy in conflict situations, especially when the stakes are high, to be overcome by the most defensive, childish, and sometimes even malicious impulses. It's such an opportunity to say, God, how do I overcome the potential for evil in this situation so that I move through this conflict so that good comes out of it? And lastly, conflict is an opportunity for us to mature into peacemakers. Who has Matthew 5, 9? Now, I'm using that language intentionally, and I've even used a counter word, peacekeeping and peacemaking. And I think it's important to hold that distinction. There's a difference between keeping the peace and actually making peace. What is peacekeeping? Peacekeeping is often what we do in order to deal with the conflict as quickly as possible. And by dealing with it, I mean just getting away from the tension of there's a conflict. So peacekeeping can look like avoiding conflict to begin with. Or appeasing the other person and just kind of telling them what they want to say and, you know, oh, I don't want to go down this road. There's no point. They're not going to listen to me. So I'm just going to be like, yep, okay, for sure. Kind of passive aggressive. But there's also a peacekeeping that shows up in a more aggressive way, right? When you have someone who's dominating, right? If you were to walk into certain households and you sort of realize after a while the vibe there is everyone's kind of walking on eggshells because there's a parent or both parents don't really have a, they haven't created a safety culture where people are allowed to say, I'm actually hurt by that or I don't agree with that. And so there's a peace because it's quiet. No one's talking about anything substantial. You get the sense over time that people are self-censoring, is, is this okay to talk about? How do I frame this? And there's this real hesitancy. And so we can peacekeep by maybe being the person in a relationship who dominates or intimidates other people into submission and quietness. Now, all of those ways of peacekeeping, avoiding conflict, just appeasing what you think the crowd or people want to hear, dominate, those are all going to establish silence, but that's not the same as shalom. You will never be able to create a culture in your marriage, with your kids, in our church of shalom if you're avoiding conflict, if you're appeasing, if you're dominating. And actually, if you do those things, over time, your world will become smaller and smaller and smaller, and your relationships will become more and more limited. 
why will your relationships become more limited over time? You tell me, why? You're not being vulnerable, and that, underneath that, that means you're not being fully honest with the other person. And you can have a relationship where you're not vulnerable, right? You can have a relationship where you're not fully honest, but there's obviously a limiting factor to the depth and the richness that, that relationship would ever be able to go to. If you say, I feel like I can only be this honest, and then that's where we stop. And if you do that across your relationships, either because you dominate other people or you just appease and avoid conflict, then by necessity, your world will become smaller and smaller. And your relationships, I, I have a lot of friends, I know a lot of people, but that sense of connection, that real sense of shalom, harmony and unity, it won't be there. So what we want to do is not settle for the false peace or the fake peace that peacekeeping will bring into our lives. We actually want to make peace. We want to be shalom makers. And that's harder because it means that we actually have to approach conflict. Not aggressively, but we have to face it. We have to tell the truth. We have to be vulnerable with ourselves, with God, with other people. We can't just constantly be dismissing, oh, that's not a big deal. It didn't really hurt that much. Ah, oh, well, it's okay. And, you know, we have to be operating in a posture of being gracious towards the person or people that we have conflict with, but also holding that tension of truth. The Gospel of John says Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. And that's the posture through which Jesus ultimately makes peace with us. And that's what we need to have for other people. Who has Colossians 3.15? James 3.15. Oh, sorry, 3.18. Yep. My handwriting's terrible, Mike. Thank you. Proverbs 12.20. And Romans 12.18. As far as it is possible, try and live at peace with everyone. Not the fake peace where you're appeasing or avoiding or dominating. You're actually learning to tell the truth, to, approach, to face those places of uncomfortable tension and to seek to work it out. And when we do that, we actually, what happens to our relationships if, if we're doing that? Almost even imperfectly, even if you're not even doing it well, if you're just taking attempts to face things and tell the truth and have a posture of grace and truth, does it restrict or does it expand your relationships? It expands them. And it might be a little messy and it might be a little bit uncomfortable, but that's how you actually get to harmony and unity in your marriages, with your core relationships, in your families, in your churches. It takes time. It's a lot quicker and easier to just sweep things under the rug, but to turn and face things with courage and faith and hope is the only way that we can actually walk in shalom, that sense of connection. It's the only way to true peace 
Ken Sandy, we'll go to the next slide, AJ. Ken Sandy talks about there are four biblical principles that we need to remember as we prepare to move towards a conversation about resolving conflict. So let's talk about how do we do that well? What does it look like to be a peacemaker? There's going to be three things I'm going to throw at you. I'm, I'm a fan of the bullet points. There's going to be a lot here. I'm not going to expand on them largely. But this is a good message. Maybe listen to a few times, take some notes, follow up with me or someone else. If you're wanting to get clarity, maybe talk about it in your small group. What does this look like in my situation? Um, what would be the wisest way I implement this? But I wanted to give you at least some framework and tools. So this is before you have that conversation. This is the preparation. So the first thing he talks about, the four Gs. This is Peacemakers Ministry International. They work with churches, businesses, uh, marriages. The first thing, again, we want to do, we heard about this before, is I want to ask myself, is my intention here honestly, more than anything, to bring glory to God? Because that has to be my highest value here. Not to win the argument, not to stick to this person, not to make sure they know how they hurt me. My highest value is to please and honor God. The next thing I want to do before I have a conversation with someone is get the log out. Who has Matthew 7, 3 to 5? Jesus makes it really clear. It's not wrong to want to address or confront something, a blind spot in a brother or sister's eye. But we have to do some self-examination first, especially if that's also an area where we struggle with. And so Jesus says, make sure you're getting the log out of your own eye, that you're doing your own work. Because part of what should frame going to the other person, is not an attitude of, I'm here to call you out on something, because frankly, it's kind of ridiculous that you struggle with this or that you're doing this, and like you should know better. The posture is, this is a difficult conversation for me. I love and care about you, and I, I struggle with similar things. Even if it's not the exact thing, you, can, you should be able to say, I know it's been hard. I know there's just certain ways that, you know, blind spots that we don't see, and I want to confess that in this area, this is what I struggle with. So it helps to establish humility. Then we want to make sure that we're committed to gently restoring the person. Who has Galatians 6.1? Okay. So Paul says... The goal is not to confront, it's to restore. The, the, the point of the discussion is not to win, it's to reconcile. To come to a place of humble reconciliation and agreement around how do we move forward from this. And then lastly, then we go. After we've done the steps, is my heart aligned to glorify God? Am I willing to take a hard look at my own spiritual fault lines, as sinful fault lines? Do I have a heart that is not worried about trying to win the argument, but actually wants to restore this person and this relationship back to shalom? 
then I can go. And the impetus there is you take the initiative. You don't wait for the other person. Who has Matthew 5, verses 23, 24? Jesus places the priority of peacemaking above the priority of worship. If you are at church in a small group and you realize there's some tension here with some other person and you leave your offering, you interrupt your time of worship to leave. That's how important it is to God. We see this throughout the New Testament. Don't, you know, in, in different ways. Don't say you love God while you hold grudges and animosity and vitriol towards your neighbor. neighbor. Your relationships to your neighbor, your attempts to be a peacemaker, reflect the extent to which you're actually rightfully aligned with God and God's heart. In the same way that you can't be a spiritually mature person, um, sorry, in the same way that you can't be a yes, spiritually emotionally, spiritually mature person, while being emotionally immature, you can't be a great lover of God while being a peacekeeper, avoiding, appeasing, dominating. God is the Prince of Peace. It's a title for Jesus, and that's one of the values that he wants to weave into and through our lives, to be makers of shalom. So those are the principles that frame our heart before we go into the conversation. What's the process? What does conflict resolution look like? Jesus gives us that. I don't know. Did I give anyone Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17? I didn't think I did. Okay. So I'm going to read it, and you listen to the process. Oh, hello. Not Matthew 5. If someone sins against you, go and show them their fault, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won that person over. But if they won't listen, take one or two others along, so that in every matter it may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then if they refuse to listen to that small group, take them and tell it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Uh, that's harsh language, but it's important to understand what's happening here. Here's the process. Jesus says, if someone sins against you or you've sinned against another person, you go. You take the initiative. And you do it one-on-one. How is that different than what we learned last week about the Roman kind of litigation system? Where do you go when you want to square up with someone? Public square. So it maximizes the pressure to bring public shame on someone. Jesus says you do the opposite. You do everything you can to protect the person's reputation, to not, ex- to not unnecessarily expose them to uh, public shame. You try and <clears throat> deal with it as tactfully as possible. You go one-on-one. You address things. We'll talk about what that looks like in a moment. Then, if there's no resolution, you take two or three other people with you. And the idea there isn't, oh, I got my team, I'm ganging up on this person, right? 
that's not the goal to win. The goal is to reconcile. So you bring two or three other people who will also say, yeah, this is a damaging thing that's going on, and, and we want to maybe use these people to help mediate a solution. Then if that doesn't work, you bring it to the larger church and say, this is the process that we've been in, and Jeff is being obstinate, he's digging his heels in, and he's treating it like it's no big deal, but lots of us, of us have said it's a big deal. How are we going to deal with this? So there is an escalation, eventually to public, and then Jesus says, if they still don't listen, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now to a Jewish audience, how do you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Did anyone know? You basically disassociate from them. You're civil. There's no, there's no violence. But you create a very strong boundary that you are not welcome to be part of this community. And before you think, well, that seems very harsh. Isn't Jesus always including people? Oh, absolutely not. Jesus has no problem being exclusionary especially to those who, after a gentle, thoughtful, careful process where their family is saying, you're actually doing a lot of damage here. We're not asking you to leave. We're asking you to stop. We're asking you to make these amends. And that person is like, no, I don't care. And they're living with that kind of flippant reaction. They're not teachable at all. Jesus says, you just set up the boundary. There's someone in your extended family that is verbally abusive, and there's no recourse that you've tried, whether it's therapy and conversations and smaller conversations, you set the boundary. You don't harbor hate, you don't go after vengeance, but you say there's going to be some boundaries in terms of how this relationship will, will look. And Jesus says it's absolutely appropriate for a community of believers to get to the place where if someone is so anti-shalom in how they're operating. They're not even trying to keep the peace. They're trying to instigate and keep the drama going. Then you say, we're going to ask you to leave. Because it's not fair for the rest of the community to continually absorb verbal, I mean, God forbid, physical, different kinds of abuses, mistreatment, slander. Even if it's not directed towards you, it affects the whole community, right? If there was one person in this congregation that was just constantly spewing stuff online about how they hated people in the church, maybe they were mentioning people by name, and they were just resistant to any level of like, you need to stop that. That's wildly destructive. The solution isn't to say at some point, well, what are you going to do? It is what it is. I guess we just keep absorbing the abuse. You say, no, this is not okay. That's where leadership has to step in and make that um, create that strong boundary, civil, but completely disconnected until the other person says, oh, I'm wrong. So this is the process. We start small and we only escalate if necessary. So that's the process. Now, lastly, through that process, we have to move into a series of pauses again and again and again. Because it's never that clean. Let's just have a conversation, have the conversation. It's amazing. Boom. We're reconciled. We move forward. You know that it's messy. And so I want to talk about this PAUSE acronym, which I found very helpful. It comes from LifeWay's leadership. I've tweaked it a little bit because um, uh, I think there's a few emphases that aren't as strong as they should be. Um, but most of this comes from LifeWay leadership. 
as we talk about pausing, we're talking about how do I go into and move through those conversations. And what's important for you to know is you need to know your conflict temperament. So if we go to the next slide, there's generally two people in a conflict. There's turtles and there's skunks. And the turtles are the ice. They are the avoiders. They are the appeasers. They are those who, when conflict begins, when they feel the vibe in the room or in the context of the relationship where there's conflict, they go into their shell. They want to retreat. It becomes, it's very natural for them to retreat away from conflict. And the skunks are those that don't mind making a, a, a big stink. They, that's kind of like their wheelhouse. That comes very naturally for them. While the turtle's retreating, the skunk is moving forward. What about this? What about this? What about this? We need to talk about this now. We need to talk about it in this way. Let's go. Let's go. Can we have a pause for tomorrow? No, we're going to talk about it right now. Right? So it's kind of like the ice and the fire and, and the cold and the hot. And the reason why this is important for you to at least generally identify what your temperament is, is because to do conflict resolution well, you will have to operate against your type a little bit. If you are a turtle, you have to understand that this process that I'm going to talk about in a moment why conflict resolution will be hard for you, why peacemaking will be hard for you, is that you're going to have to learn to be a little bit more assertive. Not aggressive, but you will have to kind of go against your type and be more assertive. And if you're a skunk, you're going to have to understand that if you want these conversations to actually be productive and constructive, you have to go against your type, which is being very assertive. And you're going to have to slow down and really lean into gentleness. Probably a gentleness that for you seems absurdly soft, but to the other person maybe just feels, oh, okay, I kind of feel like we can talk about this. And so, oh, this could be fun. This could be like confession. How many people here would say, I'm a turtle when it comes to conflict, or at least in my core relationships? It can work out differently in marriage versus school and friendships anybody else? turtle turtle hands up even the turtles don't even want to put their hands up you can just tell they're like well, i don't want to say anything and then skunks oh it's a third animal the uh yeah anyways so again we we operate through these let's go to the next slide aj so what we're doing when we're pausing is as we prepare for that conversation as we move into it there may be many times where we need to pause and we want to just pray before we meet with someone, after we, we, we meet with someone. As many times as possible, we want to be able to affirm the relationship, to say, I love you, I care about you, I'm not trying to fight against you, I'm trying to, I want us to work together to fight against this problem, this dynamic. Because if we can fix this dynamic, this can be stronger. So it's about affirming that you're, in a sense, on the same team. It's not adversarial. And sometimes you need to say that again and again. And when we're confronting someone, we need to start with a posture of understanding. To not say, I'm here to talk about this. I was really disappointed that you did this. And here are the reasons. And where do we go from here? Right? I mean, you might be correct in all of your um, assumptions about why that person did that and what happened, but you likely aren't. So we want to slow down and say, honest, truth-telling, I was hurt by what you did or what you said. I 
don't imagine you were trying to hurt me, but can you help me understand why you did that, why you said that? Again, again, you can see the whole process here is about pausing, slowing down before we meet with people, while we're meeting with people, as things begin to escalate. Hey, do we need to take a break for a few minutes and just get a drink of water and come back again? Whenever we're dealing with conflict, to make peace, you've got to slow down. We rarely do good relational work and bridge building as the adrenaline gets going. So we want to be pausing frequently, coming back and saying, okay, we're on this, I love you, let's pray together, let's, I want to understand, I want to seek a solution, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to seek a solution or a resolution. I'm not trying to win the argument. What are some options? What do you think could work? Uh, could we make some changes? What do, I, what do you think I need to change so that I don't elicit this reaction from you? And then what are our expectations moving forward? The next time this comes up, how would you like me to address it? Um, what was helpful? What was not? And again, this process might be two, six, eight meetings. You might need support for this. You might need to go to therapy or get a relationship coach to hold you in a pattern of moving through these things. But these are the principles that we want to work through again and again. Because even if you don't do it perfectly, it's just um, so much more constructive than any of the other kind of peacekeeping options. And remember, it's a skill. You don't have to be perfect at it. You're learning. You're growing. You're going to make missteps. This is something that is not easy or intuitive to do. But it's something we are called to do. Paul said in Colossians, make every effort to keep the unity in the bond of peace. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that's where I'd want to close this morning, is to, is to not see peacemaking and conflict resolution as simply a matter of, well, if I just use the right tactics and strategies, then I'll have shalom. Because I don't really think that's how it works. I, I mean, maybe you disagree with me, I'd be interested to hear, but... I actually don't think you can have deep, transformative, expansive peacemaking in your relationships if you are not at peace with God in your own heart. I think it has to start with having peace with God. Peacemaking is a posture of the heart. And if we aren't right with God, if we are resisting God, rejecting God, holding God at bay, and then trying to make peace, it's just never going to align because we were designed to have the quality of our relationships flow from and be informed by the quality of our relationship with God. And that's why for anyone, it's important to turn to Christ during times of conflict. But especially if you are like, well, I'm not really Christian. I don't believe in the religious stuff, but I'm here to like learn some of the little tips and tricks so I don't fight as much with my spouse. Like, that's, that's not the point of this message. The point of this message is you have to learn to let Christ rule in your heart. You have to surrender to him. Jesus has to be the center. You don't have to understand all that that means. But you have to be committed to saying, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your power. You came to make peace. Even while, even while I was against you in my posture because I was a sinner and I was like, I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. This is a joke. I got it. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us to make peace between warring factions. 
So because of the cross, we can actually have peace with God. And that can become the foundation through which God teaches us, how do I build peace among my relationships? Where we are in our relationship with God, whether it's full of peace or full of strife and enmity, that will spill over into your relationships. But Christ offers shalom and forgiveness and a new start. He called it being born again. And it's not just a new spiritual start for us. It's a new spiritual start for now our relationships. We have a new power through which to move into places of tension and conflict. And it might be messy and it might take time. And it may be deeply challenging. But if we learn to allow the Prince of Peace to rule in our hearts, to teach and mold us to become peacemakers, our lives and our relationships just get bigger and richer and richer and richer. Is that what you want? Yeah, amen. That's what I want too. So let's follow the call to allow Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to rule in our hearts. Let's pray.